Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Shadi Mavarzan, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Jamila Michner, an associate professor of government and public policy at Cornell University, studying poverty, racism, and public policy, with an emphasis on health and housing. She's associate dean for public engagement at the Brooks School of Public Policy, co-director of the Cornell Center for Health Equity, co-director of the Politics of Race, Immigration, Class, and Ethnicity Research Initiative, and board chair of the Cornell Prison Education Program. Her award-winning book, Fragmented Democracy, Medicaid, Federalism, and Unequal Politics, examines how Medicaid affects democratic citizenship by impacting how beneficiaries view government and participate in our political system. Most recently, Professor Michener delivered the Roger S. Aaron 64 lecture at Dartmouth College titled Uncivil Democracy, Race, Poverty, and Civil Legal Inequality. Professor Michener, we're excited to have you with us on the podcast. Oh, I'm excited to be here. And I got to spend some time with students earlier. And so when you said uh, you're a 22, I actually knew what that meant. There you go. That's perfect. Earlier, I would have thought it meant you were 22, which you very may well be. I could be. Because that's your age group. But still, yeah. I know that's not what you meant. Perfect. <laughs> you're, already, you're already a part of this community. You just <laughs> leave Cornell before it's too <laughs> So much of your research and your talk today will be focused on civil law. Um, and... You know, I th- I'm sure people who listen to this podcast and, and myself included, you know, when we think about the judicial system, I mean, I never really think about civil law. It's not something that, you know, comes to mind in even academic or everyday discussions. Could you elaborate for our listeners and I guess for me even, you know, <laughs> on the important you know role civil law can play at the community level and exactly how where that kind of situates itself in, in those communities? Absolutely. I mean, it makes perfect sense that you don't think about it very often, uh, because if you think about all the the shows you watch that involve like courts or lawyers, mm-hmm. it's always criminal, you know, and people are trying to stay out of prison or put someone in jail or what have you. But there's this whole other side of the law that doesn't have anything to do with criminal infractions. And the criminal side of the law is punitive. It's about punishing people for things that they've ways that they've broken our sort of legal or social contract as a society. The civil side is supposed to be protective. It's supposed to be about uh, protecting people's rights and protecting them from harm or exploitation that may not be criminal, but is still illegal or wrong. So some examples of like really important aspects of the civil legal system are Um, housing court. So if you're being evicted by your landlord, evictions are a legal process that get mitigated through the civil legal system. So you have to go to housing court. Landlord has to actually present valid legal reasons for the eviction. Tenants should have an opportunity to respond to that. And, and if they have, you know, that opportunity and, and, and they can, they can fight to sort of stay in their homes. That's just one example there are a ton of examples of things that fall within the span, the, um, the kind of um, the umbrella of our civil legal system. So public benefits, if you're being kicked off of your public benefits uh, for reasons that may not be fair, you may not think are fair, then you, you, you know, you deal with that through the civil, you address that through the civil legal system. Immigration, so questions of deportation are really civil questions. Sometimes if a crime has been committed, there might be some criminal elements as well. But just straight deportation c- cases. Family court is civil court. So we're talking about people keeping their children um, or perhaps not keeping their children. And so 
everything from whether you can have your children to having a roof over your head to whether you can have your public benefits and you'll be able to like eat right debt court is a civil court so whether you'll be able to be economically solvent all of the really crucial things in life, many of them get mitigated through civil courts, whereas most of us will never be arrested for a criminal infraction. But all of us have to deal with housing and some, many of us have to deal with public benefits and many of us have to deal with family issues around custody and things like that. Uh, so civil issues are way underrated, but they're super important, especially for low-income people, right? Um, upwards of 70% of, of low-income people report having at least one civil legal problem in any given year. And because they don't have income, it's harder for them to have the resources to address those problems. So that's what really draws me to it is that the most marginalized people in our country are dealing with civil legal systems for the kind of nitty gritty everyday aspects of their lives in ways that are absolutely critical to them surviving and thriving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great, that's a really important distinction. And I think one people, a lot of people don't think about. So I guess like, as you mentioned, um, are the are the ways in which like you know civil law breeds inequality or perpetuates inequality similar or different to the ways in which the criminal legal system might do that? Yeah, this is a great question. Some of the processes are different just because the people are different. So mm -hmm. one big example I'll give you is that the criminal legal system is disproportionately about uh, punitive actions taken against men. There are certainly women and the, and the the population of women being incarcerated is actually rising pretty sharply. But if we think about the big picture numbers, most of the people sort of populating that system are men. Uh, the civil system is the flip of that. It's disproportionately populated by women. So 72% of people who are in need of federal legal service benefits, benefits are women, right? And so you have a system that is serving a really significantly different population of people who have different vulnerabilities often, different needs, right? Um, and, and so that's really an important sort of way to, to understand some of the inequalities that exist. Um, but the civil system also, like, you know, it's, it's just affecting different axes and dimensions of people's lives, right? So with the criminal legal system, if you end up in prison or jail, of course, that fundamentally changes your life, right? And it fundamentally changes your life in a way that sort of cuts you off from the world, right? The civil system fundamentally changes your life in a way that makes it harder for you to like survive in the world and be protected from harm and exploitation, right? So you're not gonna be shipped off to prison, but you may lose your home, you may lose your child, you may lose vital benefits that are helping you to survive in your daily life. So there's just a proliferation of areas that this applies to in people's lives. And often people have multiple civil legal problems, right? So at least a quarter of low-income people report having six or more civil legal problems in a given year. So these problems can compound on each other. So of course, it's gonna be hard for you to keep your public benefits if you lose your home because you can't even fill out an application or get to the office or what have you. Um, so there are just so many um, arenas for, for harm and exploitation in the civil legal realm. And it's not nearly as salient. People don't think about it as much. They don't know about it as much. And they have, uh, they have like kind of misrepresentations of what the system is like. Many people think when you go to housing court, you have a right to an attorney because you do in the criminal system. 
Yeah, but you do not. You don't have any right to an attorney. Gideon versus Wainwright, the Supreme Court decision that said that makes it so that you have to have a right to attorney. If I like steal this glove, I probably can't be incarcerated for very long, if at all. But if I have to go to a trial where that's being adjudicated around me stealing, there's a glove on the table here with us, I will still have a right to an attorney. But if my home is being taken away, if my children are being taken away, if I'm being deported, I don't have a right to an attorney. That's a major axis of inequality in the civil realm that is not comparable to the criminal realm. Although in the criminal realm, you might have access to a bad attorney who's overworked, who doesn't like, you know, who can't fully serve your needs, but you will have one. The vast majority of people in civil cases do not have any legal representation. So I guess kind of based on that, right, when when policymakers or people who are able to have some kind of effect on the way civil the civil system works, when they're kind of trying to make changes or they're considering changes, how can they better consider these changes to, you know, positively benefit these very specific communities who are you know often low income, who often are in, are in the most, you know, um, at re- in the most at risk situations, how can they better, you know, direct their, their attention towards those communities who often are in the hands of the civil legal system? Yeah, that's, that's, that's so important. And I think there are two ways that you can think about, like, how do you actually improve people's lives who are, who are involved in and affected by these systems? On the one hand, you can think about doing it most directly by, like, restructuring and changing the legal systems, right? So one thing is, like, give everybody a right to an attorney in civil legal cases, right? And so people call it civil Gideon. It means you take Gideon versus Wainwright, the, the, the legal precedent that makes it so that you have to have a lawyer in criminal proceedings, and you extend it to, 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 um, to civil proceedings. And we've seen this happening in a limited basis in some places. In 2017, New York City said, you know what? Everyone who makes it 200% of the poverty line or below is going to have a right to an attorney in, a, in housing court. It's been only a few years, and it's completely changed the landscape of eviction in New York City. Not only that, it hasn't cost the, the city nearly as much money as they thought it would, in part because landlords know they'll face a lawyer when they go to court. So what do they do? They're less likely to evict without just cause. Their behavior changes, so people are not in that position anymore where they have to deal with a predatory landlord taking advantage of the fact that they don't have representation. Um, and in general, it just ended up being like a major boon for the city and the, and so things like that. And we've seen actually, it's called right to counsel movements Mm -hmm. happen all over the country. San Francisco followed right on the heels of, um, New York city and all in, in, in cities and even some States all around the country, we've seen right to counsel pass. And sometimes it's limited to housing. Sometimes it's in, in, in immigration proceedings or what have you. That is a policy avenue for really changing and just giving people access to rights they already have. You know, you you already have a right to like not be preyed upon. It varies by, by state, but not be preyed upon by an exploitative landlord. But if you don't have a lawyer in court to help you actually exercise and protect those rights, you're not going to be protected, you know. And then quickly, the other way that we can think about addressing these problems is by keeping people out of the court systems altogether. I mean, too many people end up in housing court, end up in debt court, and that's because they're not getting what they need on the other uh, on the other end of the policy system, sort of upstream, right? If people were in a position where they could pay their rent, um, where they, they wouldn't be defaulting on their debts and so on and so forth, 
then they would be less likely to end up in housing court. So I think kind of robust social policies and robust economic policies and protections will actually help to mitigate civil legal inequalities. Even though we can think about those things as really separate, they're very much intertwined. Mm-hmm. That's a really that's a really interesting point. And I guess based on you know the current challenges people face when entering the civil court system, I think one of the one of the most you know one of the groups that faces the most challenges is probably women of color. And so could you kind of go into some more detail about exactly the challenges women of color face in the system and, you know, if there's anything target to to women that can, you know, help them navigate that system, whether it is like more information about what their rights are or having that attorney with them? Yeah, your your instinct is just right. So 56 percent of people who receive civil legal aid are people of color and 72 percent of people who receive civil legal aid are women. So when you bring those things together, women of color are the kind of most common constituency among people who have civil legal needs and need civil legal resources. So part of what that means is that like any investment in creating a more just and fair civil legal system, the benefits of that will redound to women of color because they're the ones that are most likely to be like in that system. Right. But I do think there are some ways you have to think like specifically about Uh, how the particular experiences of women of color might create specific policy needs. So, for example, um, many women of color have experience in criminal courts because they've watched their brothers, their sons, their partners, their uncles, and so so on and so forth navigate criminal systems. So they have very negative perceptions of courts, right, and are very loath to interact with courts. Sometimes that means you don't show up when you get that notice to go to court for your eviction and you end up being evicted without even really ever having engaged the process at all. So I think when it comes to things like outreach, so the law I told you about in New York City where they said, okay, we're going to have right to counsel for all these folks who are making this certain income. A lot of people who gained the right to counsel were women of color, right? Which means if you go to court, you're going to have a lawyer, right? And but a lot of women, they don't, they don't know that. And so you just avoid, you get that summons and you avoid it. And so really thinking about even when we pass policies that are going to benefit everyone, there are certain communities that are alienated and have a history of injustice and are less likely to even understand that they have access to those policies, that they have the rights they do. And so not only do we have to pass the policies and make them possible, but we have to think about outreach and implementation and how we're going to make sure we bring these folks in in a way that helps them to understand now there's a possibility for them to be protected, not just preyed upon within the contours of this system, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And that's, it's really important to highlight. Um, I guess thinking about re- more recently, I, I think we've seen that this pandemic has, you know, shifted a lot of our are very like those systems that maybe policymakers people have been more reluctant to like make adjustments to in the past and so i guess how is covid i can imagine like for example eviction systems have completely changed in the past two years like have have those kinds of changes um affected proceedings in civil courts and the and how people feel when they need to be able to go to civil court absolutely i mean so COVID has really been a double a double edged sword, right? On the one hand, because of COVID, we had these moratoria on eviction proceedings, eviction filings, eviction hearings. And so it just put a halt in many places on that at all. And that gave people time and it gave them a certain degree of protection, right? And so I think a lot of people were grateful for that. 
Uh, but it also revealed the limits of our system. So, for example, a lot of illegal evictions happened during uh, during the pandemic. I mean, eviction is and must be, if you want to be within the scope of the law, a legal process. You can't just like put locks on the door before your tenant gets back home. You have to go to the court and file that legally. And when that avenue was shut off, many landlords just did what they wanted to do anyway, right? And we don't have great, and illegal evictions were happening before COVID, but they really increased during COVID. And before, both before COVID and, and after and during, I mean, I guess we're not at after yet, but during, um, there, there isn't great legal infrastructure for like enforcing the moratoria for stopping landlords from just ignoring it and doing the wrong thing, right? So I think that, that COVID revealed some of the, the, both, the opportunities, like, wait, we could just give people reprieve. That's entirely possible, right? We could give people rental assistance. We could give people resources. We could stop landlords from initiating evictions. Like that, first of all, opens up a whole new landscape of understanding in terms of what's possible. Um, but then to know we have to think about enforcement and implementation of that because it may not actually happen. There are all sorts of incentives that make people just flout the law, the law in those circumstances. Um, the other thing is like moving to virtual, right? So I was sitting in eviction hearings prior to the pandemic as a part of my, um, my ethnographic research. And I was sitting in court watching these hearings unfold. And it's like a hard, frustrating, demeaning process when you're in person. Now you shift that to being virtual. And on the one hand, you could think, oh, more people have access and they, they, they can be safe and they don't have to risk uh, vulnerability to the infection, to COVID. But online eviction hearings are even more dehumanizing and like horrible than in-person eviction hearings. There's and it creates all sorts of inequalities, right? If you don't have a good internet connection, if you don't have a computer you can zoom in on, you're zooming in, zooming in on your phone, you can only see one speaker at a time, your face can't be shown. You, they're just, it revealed like the system is reliant on a certain form, right? Of, of processing people through courts and it's not very flexible, it's not very adaptive. So I think COVID showed, showed us a lot of things that we have to work on, honestly, which we, knew we had to work on anybody who had been paying attention knew that but i think more people it became more apparent and more urgent in in the face of the pandemic yeah i mean it also sounds like too with the whole virtual component right like it's connecting like a lot of the issues that we see in the civil court system are then being connected to a lot of you know general issues with you know ac accessibility in low-income communities which is i guess like how Moving forward, obviously, one can hope that those things be better connected and changes the changes that we made will help benefit both those issues. But do you think that that's something that people are also moving toward? People, you know, like you who are looking toward for solutions in this in this area? You know, I think so. I mean, you always have to think about like solutions that are like general, broader than whatever your specific policy problem may be, but are going to help in a way that indirectly improves your specific policy problem, you know? And so I think those, and those are often bigger solutions. They're deeper and more transformative, which means they're a heavy political lift. Like, hey, if we made sure that everyone had like the technology, a good computer, good Wi-Fi, you know, if we made sure that infrastructure was beefed up, we could do a lot more things online. We could do telehealth. We could do, 
you know, eviction hearings and we'd have to really think about the process for doing it online and making sure that it was a robust and, and a process that really served people's needs and interests. But that would require the front end step of like, what is the technology infrastructure and what are the inequities in that? Absolutely. If we, if we address that big problem, we're going to address a lot of other things along the way, you know? And so I'm always a big fan of addressing the big problem. Um, but then I think often addressing the big problem is like a medium to long-term goal. And so, but people are suffering now. And so we always need to also be thinking about targeted policy interventions so that you can try to address people's needs as quickly as possible. You know? Yeah, absolutely. That, that sounds like, and that's also, you know, with all those different short, medium, long-term, a lot more of a comprehensive set of solutions that can really be connected. Yeah. But on that note, that's, I think that's a great note to end on. I want to thank you, Professor Missioner, for being with us today. Um, I've really greatly enjoyed our chat. Um, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. And until next time. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Hemlock. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. If you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.